This is Healthcare Matters on WTIC, News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Healthcare Matters is a program that delves into healthcare policy and issues. The hosts are not medical clinicians, and they're not able to offer advice about medical conditions or diseases. You're always encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Healthcare Matters, sponsored by Hartford Health. Healthcare and hosted by Rebecca Stewart and Elliot Joseph. Good morning and welcome to Healthcare Matters. This is Elliot Joseph. I'm here with my co-host Rebecca Stewart. We're really happy to be with you today. We are delving into the changing world of medical education this morning, and I'd like to hearken back to our college days, or uh, if you're a physician, maybe your days in medical school, and recall those big, huge lecture halls that we sat in as students and uh, listening to hours upon hours of lectures, uh, knowing that occasionally many of us got a little bored and I'm imagining a whole bunch of folks probably fell asleep at some point or another in those large lecture halls. Well, um, today we're reflecting on the fact that it actually turns out that this notion of uh, taking notes from uh, what we call a a sage on the stage isn't actually as effective as other ways to absorb information. And that's why, in fact, big changes are happening in medical school education. It's an exciting time uh, as we think about the the transformation of medical education. And I think that the repercussions of something like this are absolutely remarkable. And as you mentioned, that sage on a stage, you can picture the scene, but the scene's changing. So when the University of Vermont's medical school opens to students next year, it's going to be a very different place. And while this may be the first sort of very well-known school that is doing this. We're seeing this across the country. We know the University of Connecticut Medical School is also moving in this direction. But we're we're talking with folks today from the University of Connecticut Medical School and the Larner College of, Me- of Medicine at UVM. Now, at UVM, they're scheduled to make history completely eliminating lectures from the medical school curriculum. So what does this mean to the future of medical education? We have remarkable guests with us this we, morning. We do indeed, Rebecca, and it's my privilege to give you a little bit of background on uh, all three of our guests. Dr. William Jeffries, uh, Bill is the Senior Associate Dean for Medical Education at the Larna College of Medicine at the University of Vermont. And as you said, they're going to be the first medical school to completely eliminate lectures uh, from its curriculum in 2019. Dr. Jeffries has written and presented widely on uh, medical education and was one of the editors for the Handbook for Medical Teachers, which is the classic guide for medical education. And he is now a self-proclaimed convert. He loves lecturing and has written extensively about it, but he has seen the research and now believes students learn better in other ways. Dr. Jeffries has been actively engaged in medical student education for over 20 years. Additionally, we are joined by our friends at the UConn, Dr. David Henderson, Associate Dean of Student Affairs at the UConn Medical School. And David is a trained family practitioner, and he'll join us in a few minutes. And also, Dr. Thomas Nowicki. Tom is the Medical Director of Education at SESI, which is Hartford Healthcare Center for Education, Simulation, and Innovation. He's been the Director of Continuing Medical Education and is also a practicing emergency medicine physician. 
Let's get right at it. We sure are. So we are going to start this morning with Bill Jeffries. So, Bill, if you don't mind sort of taking us through, I think the first thing we have to explain is what is active learning? Well, active learning is a, uh, a method of teaching that involves basically having the, the students do something as opposed to just listen to something in lecture. And, and um, that's, the, that's the, the fundamental basis. So typically in, in education, the, the classic model has been to attend a lecture and then go back to your, uh, to your home or to your study hall and try to make sense of it all and, and to re-study it or reread the material and, and try to work on problems maybe at, uh, that, that reinforce that. In active learning, you bring the knowledge with you, so you do your studying before you get there, and then you work on application of, of knowledge, and, and you work on real-world problems that have a correct answer in, in the group, and, and, uh, and, it, and it focuses more on the, the development of the reasoning process as opposed to the, the memorization of facts. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, as I was preparing for our conversation this morning. I, I did have a flashback uh, of uh, my days in graduate school, not necessarily medical school, but uh, my roommate and I would be studying for exams, and we had a mantra, one-word mantra, and it was memorize. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, one of the other of us would just say memorize, and then we'd just go back to the book and continue reading. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I remember uh, much of anything from, the, from, from what, I, what I memorized. It's amazing. I was doing the same thing, thinking back in those big lecture halls and hearing. I remember the sound of the girl yawning next to me. I remember her sound. And I want to I wanna ask sort of why doesn't that work? Are we not innately wired to learn in that way? Well, uh, let me make clear. You do learn in that way. Um, it, it's just not the most optimal way to learn. And, uh, but it is the easiest way to teach. So mm-hmm. I think that there are forces that have created this model uh, that allow it to continue. Uh, but the, you, you learn by, by really uh, experiencing life and, and taking new information in and processing it uh, with the, uh, the, the memories that are already stored in your brain to create a new story. And um, lecturing is, puts the students in a position to really not be able to do that. There's not much experience happening. You're just listening. And, and it turns out if you measure the arousal of students during lecture, it dissipates at a fairly rapid pace over the first 10 to 15 minutes of the presentation. And most lectures last an hour. Uh, and so they're sitting at a low arousal state for most of the time. And then the arousal starts to come back up uh, right toward the end of the lecture as the student anticipates the session being over. Wow. So there's actually studies that have been done to measure brain activity in this regard, Bill? Yes, and, and various uh, indicators of brain activity have been have been measured in that way. And, and so it, it, it looks like it's really not an optimal way to do it. Um, the, the students... All students generally learn in shorter bursts. If you're going to have an information dump uh, in 10, 15, 20-minute uh, intervals, I don't know if you notice the average TED Talk is always under 15 minutes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and uh, so it's if you're going to do that style, it should be in a short burst. And, and then 
uh, it, the best way to remember is to then have to immediately apply that information or, or shortly thereafter apply that information. Uh, and, and that way you will be using the, the information and building in your brain those experiences that are necessary to have a long-term uh, memory and prioritization of that experience. Now, I do want to point out there are sort of pockets of excellence in this educational world, and I'm going to bring in Tom Nowicki because you do a lot of work with sort of mid-career practitioners, physicians, um, and what you do, so as the medical director of the Center for Education, Simulation, and Innovation, can you just take us to a really practical, uh, really explain to folks what do you do when you're helping folks and doing this with medical mannequins? What is this? Sure, yeah. If you look at medical education, it's an exciting time. I agree that there's a lot of change and we're learning from the adult learning theory models, etc. And in our environment, we're working with either advanced trainees, so graduate medical education in residency education, as well as practicing doctors and nurses. And so it's a continual spectrum all the way from pre-med through medical school as Bill's um, sharing his his work on, as well as then for the practicing folks. And they're often forgotten in medicine, actually. We have requirements for continuing education, but it's done traditionally in the old passive lecture format as well. So in our center, we're very lucky to have resources to provide this advanced and active learning that's really what our core principle is. Can you set the scene? Because if you haven't ever experienced it, you know, take us through what you do. I mean, there's smoke, there's language, there. I mean, you do everything there. Yeah, it's amazing. We replicate real clinical scenarios. We immerse the students into an environment where they feel that they're actually taking care of somebody. And they are allowed to then apply the knowledge that they've learned through these other methods. And we can help them learn how to think as doctors and nurses. And the, the technology of virtual reality is also emerging as a very important part of this whole movement, correct, Tom? Yeah, definitely. Currently, we rely on medical mannequins, and they're, they can be quite expensive, but they're very realistic. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for, for helping us with those. Um, these things are amazing, though. The, the eyes open and close. The pupils react to light. Yes. They breathe. They talk. It's and, amazing. Yeah. And they really are, really are amazing. But the future is believed to be in virtual and augmented reality, where we can, for much lower cost, mm -hmm. replicate these clinical areas, and, and in some cases, maybe make them even more realistic. Right. I think it's a great time to bring in our colleagues at the University of Connecticut Medical School. We do have Dr. Henderson on the line, and we appreciate you calling in. Hi. Um, I um, am just uh, here to, um, just to talk a bit about the changes that we've made in our curriculum uh, over the past two years. In 2016, uh, we rolled out um, a new curriculum um, and um, we rolled out a curriculum that is um, designed to be patient-centered and learner-centered. Uh, we actually got rid of all the lectures in, uh, in the basic science part of the curriculum and, actually, and decreased that uh, part of the curriculum from um, two years to 18 months. And we moved to a system called team-based learning, which um, I think Dr. Um, uh, Jeffries has talked, talked a little bit about active learning. Uh, uh, team-based learning is based on active learning. It's uh, based on the flipped classroom model where um, students, instead of just sort of coming to lecture largely blind, not having done much to prepare, um, and then going uh, home to study after the lecture, students are actually given materials 
that are themselves fairly interactive um, uh, before um, the class. They come to class, they work in teams to um, solidify basic concepts uh, and principally to do problem solving, um, just so that once you have the concepts down, um, then you use them. Um, this is all presented to students um, in the context of a patient case. Uh, we are part of a collaborative um, with the um, AMA. Um, AMA has brought together about 40 schools across the country uh, in their um, sort of change med ed, uh, which is the name of their, uh, of their collaborative, um, to try to generate ideas to transform medical education. And so we use virtual patients as part of as part of our curriculum, uh, we've designed uh, three virtual families, uh, and we've collaborated with the Indiana University uh, to pull real patient data from a teaching uh, electronic medical record that they have. And those patient cases are the start of every uh, week in our basic science course. Yeah, and so that material contextualizes everything that students learn. We teach pathophysiology, which is sort of disease in the context of basic physiology, um, so that students are actually learning um, the basics while they're understanding how uh, disease occurs as well, as opposed to the traditional method where uh, students spend a year learning what's normal uh, and then an another year learning what's abnormal. Wow. Frustrated during the yeah. first year that they don't really understand why they're learning um, what they're learning. Do Dr. Henderson, let me, let me ask, let me take one piece of that, and I really appreciate you explaining uh, the exciting activity that's going on in the transformational medical education at the University of Connecticut. Um, this notion of team-based learning, I'm so curious about it. Um, Intuitively, it makes sense uh, being in this uh, in the medical uh, uh, industry for a long time now. I've gotten used to the idea of individual heroic physician uh, intervention. Mm -hmm. um, so all of a sudden now we're talking about teams and team-based yeah. learning. I guess that, let me let me turn to Dr. Jeffries first and say what 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 is it about team-based learning in in the, in medical care that's uh, being what, why is it coming to the forefront at this point? Uh, well, team-based learning is a, is a really fantastic uh, uh, in, invention uh, by Larry Michelson uh, a couple decades ago. It came out of the business literature, uh, the business teaching uh, uh, practice, and um, has been adapted by uh, many medical schools over the country. We put uh, team-based learning into our curriculum in uh, 2012, and, and really it's been a, a really a fantastic uh, uh, vehicle for our students to learn. And, and the, the thing that's good about it is that uh, students prepare by themselves and, 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 and bring that knowledge back to, to the, to the uh, session with them. And uh, they work in teams to solve problems that are uh, clinical in nature and have a correct answer. And they all work on the same problem in small groups uh, under the supervision of the faculty member. And this really creates an environment where students are mimicking a clinical case. They're, they're working on a team, just like in, in real, uh, the, the clinical environment, and they're working on a significant clinical problem, just like in the clinical environment, and they're coming up with, uh, hopefully, the correct diagnosis and treatment plan, uh, or whatever the, the, the exercise uh, endpoint is. But the, the, the beauty of it is that not only do the students come away with a lot of knowledge, medical knowledge, but they're also developing their skills. 
And the, among the skills that they're developing include the communication, uh, you know, that the, they have to present their answers or discuss them with their colleagues. Um, they have uh, teamwork, which is being uh, uh, developed and reinforced, and you can assess their teamwork ability in, in that session. Um, and and uh, they, their clinical reasoning ability is being tested, and the, their, their, the scientific rigor of what they're trying to accomplish is, is always maintained. So it's really a, a perfect vehicle for medical education, particularly in the early years. Um, in, in our clinical environment, once the students get in on the wards, we've sort of adapted those technology, the, the techniques and, and uh, to, to only work on clinical cases and in a, in a shortened so, fashion. We've eliminated or are eliminating all the lectures in the clinical education as well. It's fascinating it's to really see. I have a great... I have a, uh, the, the, the relevance because, you know, adults learn in context, and that's, that's really what we're trying to focus on. I love that. Now, I do have a great example from, um, from your site about active learning that talks a little bit and sort of showcases our listeners right now. What are we talking about? So I'd love for folks to listen in. This is sort of one of the lessons, an example of active learning and how the team can try to make sense. This is William Raska from the Learner College of Medicine, and I need your help with a patient. I'm seeing a 16-year-old boy with terrible belly pain for the past day, and he says it hurts down there on the right side. What should we do? Should we examine him? I think that's a great idea. Now I've washed my hands, I've inspected, I've auscultated. How's it feel? Does it hurt anywhere? It hurts a little bit. How about down over here? Oh, it hurts a lot. Does it hurt more when I push in or let go? Oh, when you let go. Uh-oh, that doesn't sound good. What do you want? Complete glycop? We did do attacks and defenses. No anemia. White counts 15,000. Anything else we should do? Ultrasound. Any first-year students that can help me interpret this? Looks like he's got appendicitis that hasn't ruptured. What should we do? Oh, I don't know. I'm not hearing him. Lo and behold, look at this. He's got five answers taped to his forehead. Should we give him fluids and observe? Should we give him antibiotics and observe? Should we perform a laparotomy? How about laparoscopic surgery? Or we could send his stool for culture and an OVA and Pratt exam. Let me know. Don't worry, they'll respond really quickly. This is William Raska for the Lanner College of Medicine. Dr. Henderson, your uh, your reaction to that that uh, tape? Uh, how is that playing out at UConn? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I think that is a very good example of um, of a team working together, um, and the way um, medicine is actually already being practiced and will certainly be practiced even more um, uh, going forward is um, vis-a-vis. Um, interprofessional teams and at UConn um, our dental students and medical students actually learn together um, during uh, the first part of the curriculum so our uh, team based learning groups are interprofessional from uh, from the beginning and again um, I think that example is a very good example of uh, of the problem solving that can occur in uh, in the context of um, of, uh, of team-based learning. Yeah. Dr. Nowicki, yeah. Um, your perspective as the head of the uh, Center for Education Simulation Innovation, how does team-based learning play out in a simulation environment? Can you give us a specific example of that? Yeah, if I can start with saying that it gives me flashbacks, actually, to <laughs> medical school where a small number of us realized that lectures weren't actually required. And so a few of us had the courage to step out and actually do this, I think, before it was a thing. We got together, read the material, and bounced the ideas off of each other to learn. 
One of the things we're alluding to here is the idea that in medicine we do work as teams. And that isn't something that folks necessarily came away from medical school with being very strong um, back in the day. And I think it's, it's changing the new folks into medicine now. But that's what we do in the center is we work in teams and try to help each other not only learn, but then actually provide the top care to our patients. Does anybody here think there's a correlation between this movement towards team-based learning and more women entering the medical field? Is there a, a, that's, I'm just, I'm throwing that out there. I, I think that's an interesting perspective. <laughs> I, actually, there was a great debate um, in my family with the growing numbers of women in medical school. There was another physician who'd weighed in and um, talking about where are we seeing these? We're actually, I, we're seeing a lot in um, in anesthesia, but there are also quite a few in surgery. And I just want to point out that that um, you must be you must be seeing a lot of this. I'm curious about that with as you're talking through the team, but really, I feel like that's been flipped. It's not just the sage on the stage, but it's really what it represents and kind of what you were talking about, Elliot, that it was the physician in charge who made those calls. Right. Um, I'm fascinated by your idea that you sort of self-selected out of those lectures because they didn't work for you. Right. Um, that's fascinating to to me anyway. Take me through sort of what did you do instead? Well, the material was there. We learned through textbooks. And the hope was that the lecture could steer us toward what was most important, perhaps, and help organize it. So we did take notes. We attended some lectures. But then to help each other drive that information in to me to memorize those facts and then learn how to apply them, uh, not just for the purpose of taking a test, but actually for taking care of patients. It's quite different, actually. What about, and I'm curious, actually, for both of our callers today, what about learning the skeleton, learning the muscular system? That, to me, still screams memorization. Is that something that's still expected? What are your thoughts about learning and teaching that? Well, actually, uh, yes, it is. But um, I think that the approach is different now, uh, certainly UConn, than it was when I was in medical school. Um, uh, as part of our uh, curriculum reform, uh, we converted one of our uh, uh, cadaver anatomy labs to a virtual anatomy lab. Um, and so, um, so students uh, learn anatomy on a cadaver. They also learn um, anatomy um, that's basically computerized. We have a number of these uh, very large uh, they're essentially flat screen computers that are horizontal or about six feet long. Um, and, um, and they have um, images of uh, cadavers. They have uh, images of x-rays and MRIs. Um, and students, can, st students have a number of different modalities to use to learn uh, anatomy as opposed to just one, um, which I think um, gets to the importance of um, being able to uh, present material that aligns with learning styles of different learners. Um, and I, I think that is another Im really important innovation that, that's going on now because I think, and I think um, um, everyone would probably agree that when we were all in medical school, uh, things were presented in one way, and if you didn't get it that way, then, well, uh, that was unfortunate. Mm -hmm. um, but I think now there's an effort to uh, present material in, uh, in a number of different formats um, because we have a much more diverse uh, group of learners now as well, which I think gets back to the question that you asked about women. 
um, and I hear that um, the way that hits my ear is uh, vis-a-vis diversity. I mean, I think the workforce that we need to develop to provide care uh, to the population um, needs to reflect the population, and I think that's a reflection of the increased number of women um, uh, in medical school now as well as, um, as students from an underrepresented groups. Interesting. Dr. Jeffries, your thoughts? Well, uh, I think that, um, yes, we, we have a number of, uh, of we use uh, different approaches to the teaching of anatomy and, uh, and physiology. And obviously, there's core information that needs to be remembered, but again, the best way to remember something is to, is to put it to use. So we have uh, anatomy laboratories that are combined with uh, all of the clinical imaging that you would need. We have a point-of-care ultrasound uh, program, for example, where our students from the first week of anatomy are also using ultrasound, their own ultrasound machines to, uh, uh, to visualize the, the organs uh, and, and various conditions uh, that, are, that are, can be detected through this method and, and really relate the, 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 the muscles and bones that they're seeing to the clinical images that they're later going to be called upon to interpret. I love that. So Dr. Jeffries and Dr. Henderson, we have two wonderful experts on the phone and amazing expert Dr. Tom Nowicki in our studio with us. We are talking about the changing world of medical education and we will be right back. Welcome back. This is Elliot Joseph with Rebecca Stewart on Healthcare Matters on WTIC 1080. And we are having a really great conversation about the changing world of medical education with some national experts at our disposal. And uh, we're asking all of us to hearken back to our own educations uh, in college, graduate school, medical school, and uh, the old image of the uh, those incredibly large lecture halls where hundreds of us sat hour upon hour, some of us uh, falling asleep, some of us thinking of other things. And uh, what is now being discovered is that's not necessarily the best way to learn and acquire new knowledge. And uh, we are speaking with the folks who are transforming medical education around the country and uh, some right here at home. And our guests uh, today are uh, Dr. Bill Jeffries, who is the Senior Associate Dean for Medical Education at the Larna College of Medicine at the University of Vermont. Uh, Dr. Jeffries is a highly regarded national expert on medical education and uh, was a co-author of the Classic Guide for Medical Education, actually. And uh, now he's uh, moved on in his thinking uh, to uh, really understand um, the changes that are afoot and necessary and leading a real transformation at the University of Vermont uh, School of Medicine. As well, we have Dr. David Henderson from the uh, UConn Medical School. David is the Associate Dean of Student Affairs and uh, leading the transformation of medical education to team-based learning uh, right here at the uh, University of Connecticut. And lastly, we have Dr. Tom Nowicki, who is the medical director of the Center for Education and Simulation Innovation at Hartford HealthCare and has uh, been the director of the Continuing Medical Education Program there as well. So we are benefited by three incredible experts uh, who are leading the transformation of medical education in America. And as we listen to this, I think there is this fabulous, as we are having our conversations here, this aha moment that this makes 
perfect sense. We can all harken back and remember the time that there was something you were trying to learn and suddenly you got it. So we want to ask our listeners this morning, we want to hear from you. We do have these great guests, but we want to know, have you ever given much thought to how your physicians learned? Or when you think back to your own education, is there that moment that you thought, well, when I went to that museum, it made a lot more sense than when we sat in class and learned it. We want to hear from you. We want to know your experience. That number is 860-522-WTIC. That is 860-522-9842. Give us a call. And I'd like to hear from each of our guests this morning uh, as you're all innovating and the early stage of this innovation. How do you know it's working? What kind of feedback are you getting? What data are you looking at? Uh, let me start with Dr. Jeffries at the uh, University of Vermont. Uh, what, you know, the university has made, you're all in, right? I mean, you've, you've announced you're eliminating all lectures in the medical school. So uh, there must be some pretty compelling data at your disposal. What, what have you seen? Well, um, what, we, what we've done is uh, really elevated the education mission of the medical school to the same level as and standards of rigor that we would use for research or clinical care, you know, and when you do that, you have to have strong evidence behind it. So every, every course that we have is, is, is really an experiment, and, and we're looking at the, the, the acquisition of knowledge, we're looking at the development of skills, uh, and the, the, the overall outcome, the long-term retention and, and building of, of these skills uh, as, as the students progress through, through medical school. So. Um, it's a it's a big experiment, and we're we're, uh, we're we're collecting the data right now. We do know that the students, uh, you know, in in our early research, report that the 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 active learning is 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 a it's a hard sell both to the students and to the faculty because the faculty like to lecture and it's easier to to do what you've been doing. Right. Uh, and the students like the lectures because it's a guide to the test. You know, you just you're yep. being told what's going what's on the test. So right. the students like that. Um, but it turns out when you ask the students later about their learning, the students actually preferred the active learning methods including team-based learning and other methods. Uh, and they actually learned more. So those are the early things that we're seeing right here. I yeah. will say one other thing, and it relates to uh, what Dr. Henderson said before and, and the, 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 the discussion about women. Um, we have about half women in our class uh, right now, and um, it, it turns out there's a lot of data that show that, that the, the previously documented uh, achievement gaps in science uh, that, that have been uh, seen in women and underrepresented minorities in, in, in education uh, are, are largely eliminated uh, with active learning methods. And, and so we've seen, again, a, a very high satisfaction rate and, and, a, and a, uh, a, a, an increase in the engagement and, and in outcome with respect to uh, with all learners, yeah, that's in particular that, women and underrepresented minorities. That's exciting. Let me go to uh, Dr. Henderson uh, with uh, UConn. You un, uh, unveiled, I think it was in 2016, this M-Delta curriculum. Yes. And, um, again, you've had to have seen some evidence that's compelling you to continue to move forward. Can you describe it from your experience at UConn? Yes. I mean, I think uh, the feedback that we uh, have gotten from students um, has been has been actually um, very positive and has helped us uh, improve uh, things uh, over the last well, almost two years now. And I think that um, we've been talking about sort of uh, delivery of information, 
Um, but I think um, there's an important story in assessment as well, um, because if we look at assessments, if we look at student success, uh, over the course of the new curriculum so far, uh, students actually seem to be more successful um, than in, um, in previous years. And I think at least there's one element of that um, that we have instituted that um, is, is probably at least partially responsible. I, mean, I think some of it is, is, is the difference in format uh, and the fact that we, that students have a number of different ways to engage the material, um, but also um, the way we assess them. Uh, we have a fairly innovative uh, assessment method, which is called LEAP, which is uh, we have these two-week periods after each 10-week block uh, where students are assessed. Uh, they take an exam, um, and um, that exam is graded. And we look at that exam fairly carefully, and we look at um, uh, specific sections of the exam. And so even though a student may actually pass uh, the exam overall, if there were, uh, were sections in which um, their knowledge seemed to be uh, a bit weak, students are given an opportunity during that time frame um, to um, fill some of those gaps. Um, without any specific penalty, yeah. um, because the issue is um, the acquisition and the consolidation of, of knowledge and skill. If students have um, done well and, and don't demonstrate any gaps, those students are given opportunities for individual learning opportunities, mm -hmm. um, which are opportunities to um, delve deeper into uh, the subject matter or uh, engage other activities, uh, other elective-type activities outside the curriculum to enrich their, uh, their education. So, so, so um, like any, uh, any industry, um, those folks who are first movers and innovators, just like the University of Vermont and the University of Connecticut, um, you know, there are always traditionalists who say, bah humbug, um, this is a fad, uh, there is not enough research and data to demonstrate its efficacy. Uh, what, what are you fighting against uh, through, from, from the traditional view of medical education? I would say, you know, there's a lot of inertia in, in and, and the, the way that, that the faculty are organized uh, is, and the departments are organized is around discipline-based instruction. And most faculty members don't have any formal instruction in how to teach. Um, what we've done here is, is recognize that that's the case. And so to convince the faculty, you go over the evidence. And, and there was a pretty famous meta-analysis, which is a study of studies, that was done back in 2014, looking at all the active learning studies in the literature in science, technology, education, and mathematics. And uh, there were about 225 studies in that, in that uh, analysis, and the score was 225 to zero. Uh, active learning beat lectures. Mm. So, wow. Hard to beat those numbers. <laughs> yeah. So when you show faculty that, every, every faculty member in a, in a medical school is a scientist or a, or a clinician or both. And, and they go by standards of evidence. And when you show people those types of data, then it, 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 makes, it makes it easier to convince them. But they still don't have the skill to do, to do the teaching. So uh, here we've, we've instituted a teaching academy, which uh, is specific mission of the teaching academy is to provide additional teaching skill and scholarship in education uh, for our faculty to, to help make, make sure that they can actually teach in those methods to, to produce the outcomes that we're looking for. Dr. Henderson, your, your perspective uh, in terms of what you're maybe fighting up against and, and how, you're, how you're pushing forward in this innovative uh, space? I mean, I think that there will always be traditionalists 
but um, as far as medical education innovation is concerned, I think the train has already left the station. Um, there are a number of large national groups. I uh, previously mentioned the consortium with the AMA um, uh, that involves, um, I mean, almost a third of the medical schools in the country um, who are actively working on um, uh, innovative uh, improvements in medical education. Uh, the AAMC, uh, which is um, the um, um, the governing body of medical schools in the country, um, is um, it, is actually pushing this forward as well. I mean, so I think it's um, it's being pushed along fairly uh, fairly aggressively at a national level mm -hmm. um, and in many schools as uh, at a local level. And um, there is a lot of collaboration across schools as well. Um, so I think that um, even though there are um, individuals um, in just about every school who probably want to maintain uh, the status quo, um, I think there is a good deal of momentum um, and that we will continue to move forward in a really positive direction. I think that the repercussions, I think that the ramifications, I should say, not repercussions, but there is so much more that this could do to the education system in general. If I hearken back to my old philosophy days and you think back to John Dewey, who was a philosopher, I want to say from the 30s, who was and a, from the University of Vermont. And from the <laughs> University of Vermont. Look at me hearkening back to you. The, he was a huge advocate, a reformer of education who believed in practical knowledge. Do something. Don't sit there and tell me about it. Show me how to do it. So even though we're coming back to this, this is this amazing amazing theory that has been out there for some time. Yeah, so let me build on that. There's uh, something that I've uh, become familiar with, a theory or actually a practice of medical education uh, that's finally referred to as see one, do one. And uh, Dr. Nowicki is the head of the simulation center, uh, world-class simulation center at that. Um, how, is, how is the work you and your colleagues are doing in simulation affecting that tried and true standard way of, of training uh, physicians in, in procedural work, for example. That's what I grew up in is see one, do one, teach one. So literally you would watch somebody do something, say a procedure, you'd perform one, and then you were deemed the expert and you would teach one. It's really a changing landscape. We, we used to train based on time. So we assumed if you've spent enough time in training and you've seen enough, you must get good at doing it. But that's really not the case. You can do something, I think, wrong many times over <laughs> and continue doing it wrong. Yes. So now we're looking more for outcome-based. And that's a transition for us. We, we use that principle in the um, Center for Education, Simulation, and Innovation where we try to take what folks really need and train that give them expert feedback to help them grow as an individual until they get it. And that's really the, the end point. Now. And one of the things that Tom mentioned earlier was that what he saw was as people were learning, they, they didn't know what they didn't know. And they thought, I'm the expert at this. I can do it. And it was only when they actually saw it in practice and they said, oh, I don't know this. And they had right. to make that aha moment for themselves personally or it doesn't work. Yeah, as adult learners, that's a very interesting point is that we all select what we think is important and therefore what we want to learn. If mm -hmm. we deem it unimportant, we tune out. We don't listen to it. We don't learn about it. But in our simulation center, we provide clinical scenarios, scenarios where people identify those needs. 
the, the light turns on for them. They realize, whoa, I need to know this, yeah. and it changes their tune. It's it's very rewarding to watch that happen. This is so interesting. I mean, it's so intuitive when I listen to the three experts, our guests today, explain this. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, because of my training, I have to ask the business question. Mm-hmm. Right? This sounds more expensive than throwing 200 people into a lecture hall and telling them, uh, the information and requiring them to go home and memorize it. So talk me into how do we as a country, a society, uh, is this more expensive ultimately? Let me start there. So uh, my, my, my intuitive response may be completely off kilter. And um, how do we deal with it? And, and what's the implication for tuition and things of that nature about the, as we potentially increase the cost while we become more effective. I, let me open that up to uh, Dr. Jeffries first. I'll, I'll give you the first shot at that one. Uh, well, there are costs associated with, with this. Now, remember, uh, I estimated that we spend about uh, close to $4 million a year supporting lectures here at the University of Vermont. So that's student tuition money that's being paid, and we could repurpose that money. So that, that there is a, a trade-off of, of expenses um, but there, there is a need to teach the faculty, as I said, and to raise the standard of, of um, the, the, the standard of quality of teaching, and, and that that takes some effort and research, and, and and most importantly, the time of faculty. And most faculty are busy clinicians or scientists, and and so we have to free up that time. But here, what we've done is we've sort of changed the formulas for distribution of student tuition money. Uh, and, and other support back to the departments to favor active learning as opposed to lectures. And the support for lectures is tapering to zero. And, and if the departments want to stay clinically or, 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 or I should say financially viable, uh, they need to understand what, what, what needs to happen for, for, their, uh, for their resources. Uh, thank you. Dr. Henderson, let me ask you uh, at the University of Connecticut, as you're advancing in this uh, transformative stage towards active learning and team-based learning, um, what do your conversations with the CFO at the university sound like here? Um, well, I think that, I mean, technologies, certainly new technology uh, costs money, um, but I think we have managed to um, to do what we have done um, without spending sort of additional money on um, on faculty time. Uh, I mean, we have managed to use the the faculty time that uh, we had in lectures and repurpose it um, to build um, materials that students engage outside of class um, in a self-directed manner um, uh, as part of the team-based learning experience. So, yes, the technology does cost uh, additional right uh, right and require additional uh, financial resources but uh, we've managed to use uh, our faculty time we just essentially re- repurposed it uh, within the structure of the new curriculum thank you and uh, dr. Nowicki your perspective on this question yeah we're raising the idea here I think that med- medical educators often are in the position they're in because they're clinically good not that they've had uh, training in how to teach so I think that's an important point to invest in that is our ability to teach. You've probably heard the saying, teach a man to fish, feed him for a day. Right. Teach a man to fish, uh, um, 
Give a man a give a man a give fish. a man a fish. Yes, <laughs> we knew what you meant. Yes, give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Right? Teach a man the fish, and you feed, feed him, him for, for a lifetime. lifetime. But there's another la- layer to that: is to teach a man to teach, and you can feed the world. Um, that's what I think we're investing with is our educators and trying to make that process more efficient because there's a larger body of knowledge and less time to teach it. So we have to do it more efficiently. And if we have better physicians and providers at the end. That's where we we reap the benefits. That's sort of where Elliot has talked earlier about bringing in artificial intelligence, bringing in the data, because you can see as things have evolved, really every day there's a new breakthrough. There's something new for our young physicians, those first year medical students to learn. How do you bring all of that in for years plus? So part of what Rebecca just mentioned really spurs an, an important question in my mind anyway. Um, you know, with the advancing uh, volume of me- new medical information, I think it's pretty well understood that you know no one physician can capture all of that in their brain, regardless of how uh, capable they may be uh, in terms of the size of their intellect. And again, that gets back to this notion, I assume, of team-based learning. Um, how how does this address? You know, on one hand, medical schools. And the movement in, in training are becoming increasingly subspecialized, super subspecialized to deal with all this advancing informa- uh, and new knowledge. And that leads to potentially further fragmentation in the mm-hmm. care that patients receive. How does this training and education address that that advancing evolution? Are you bringing in that data piece, the artificial intelligence part of it? Dr. Jeffries? Uh, certainly, and and uh, you know, I, I recently saw a statistic that said that the, the amount of medical uh, knowledge doubled at the rate of uh, uh, once every uh, 100 years in 1950. Wow! And yeah. now it's uh, it's it's doubling at the rate of uh, every 88 days. Yep, yep. It's like so technology. we have to recognize that that again, the the, the memorization of facts is great, but it, it really it's impossible in, in today's environment. So we have to teach our students how to think and, and, and how to access the information that they need in a quick manner. And, and so we have, uh, for example, in the electronic medical record, there's decision support software that, that'll, that ensures that certain important questions aren't forgotten or that, uh, you know, there's prompting uh, to, to make sure that, that, this, that there's a high quality of care in there. Um, and, and, and we have, uh, you know, a number of, of, of techniques to, to support student information gathering uh, that involves technology. But the, the, the students really still need to think like a physician. Hmm. I'm curious. Oh, you, Dr. Henderson wants to say. If I can jump in here. Sure, right. please. I think that um, sort of two things really quickly. One is that um, 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 I agree with what Dr. Jeffries just said, and, and it's, it's access to information when you need the information, sort of access to the information at the point of care, um, and, and having the skill um, and resources available to do that, and to do that in a way that doesn't in, interrupt the interaction with the patient. And that's one thing that we've been teaching at UConn for, actually for as, as long as I've been there, because that's the thing that, that actually initially brought me there, um, to work on a, a project to do that. Um, and the other piece, I think, with regard to curricular reform, um, is um, the teaching uh, environment that um, we've created um, helps to develop the skills that are necessary for lifelong learning uh, because we are always learning because, as Dr. Jeffrey said, uh, the, um, 
the explosion of knowledge continues and it only gets more rapid over time. So let's wrap with where's this headed mm. for each of you? I'd just like to hear what are the next five, even 10 years look like? Um, anybody want to jump in first on that one? If not, I'll call on somebody. <laughs> I, think, I, think the, I think the next five or 10 years look incredibly exciting. I think this is a really exciting uh, time to be involved in, in, med, in medical education. I think technology has uh, a, a great deal of, of potential to continue to transform how we teach um, students and, and how medicine is actually uh, practiced on a, um, on a day-to-day level. So I think that um, we will learn from what we're doing now and that we will continue to, um, to evolve. We, at UConn, and we've made a, a, a big stride forward, uh, but we're not done innovating. And so um, if you uh, come back and look at our curriculum in five years, I think it will be um, much more enhanced than it is even now. What's, what's one change you would anticipate in five years? Anything specific, uh, Dave? That um, Specifically, um, I think teaching in a manner that's more holistic. If you look at this historically, um, uh, um, when we all went to medical school, um, we had individual courses. We had a, a pharmacology course where we learned about drugs. We had an anatomy course um, and a physiology course. Um, and, um, and then um, schools um, moved to more organ system-based uh, structures where you started with um, a, a, an organ system and you learned um, everything about uh, that organ system. You learned about pharmacology vis-a-vis that organ system, uh, the anatomy and physiology, et cetera. Um, and I see things moving to um, a setting where um, uh, things are pr- presented in a single um, yeah. setting all right. uh, where you've got um, all of the science, uh, all, all, all of the basic science, all the clinical science, uh, and all of the behavioral and population science. Excellent. All together. Dr. Show. Jeffries, I don't want to leave you out in the cold. Can you give us in a nutshell your thoughts? we got about a minute. <laughs> well, I, I think that the, the, the structures of, of health care are going to uh, dictate in large part the, the needs of the, of the system. So we're looking to see what healthcare uh, changes happen to, to better design the system around that. But I think a lot of the education-based structures, particularly residency programs and, and those things beyond medical school, are going to collapse under their own weight. And, and really, uh, active learning and, and lifelong learning uh, is going to drive a lot of the, 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 the education moving forward. And, and we need to see a, a reduction in the time it takes to train a physician. Absolutely. Yes. And that's where you're moving forward. This has been Healthcare Matters. We thank all of our guests this morning. We're so thrilled that you have joined us. And we will be right back here in a few weeks. This has been Healthcare Matters. This has been Healthcare Matters, sponsored by Hartford Healthcare. Tune in next month as we continue to discuss the status of healthcare, determine what works and what doesn't, and work to bridge the gap. Healthcare Matters on WTIC, News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. We're